Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with Gaza and particularly the second phase and how it has progressed. Uh, yeah, Gaza. Um, we should start with casualties. The health ministry in Gaza report reported Thursday a death toll of. 9,061 people since October 7th, over 3,700 of them children, more than 32,000 wounded. Um, and as you say, phase two of the Israeli operation uh, is well underway and looks like it may have achieved its first real uh, discernible success on Thursday. Um, the Israelis have been advancing on the outskirts of Gaza City uh, particularly to the south, where they cut off the Salahuddin Road, which is uh, the main thoroughfare that, that uh, somebody wanted to, say, follow the Israeli uh, diktat to evacuate Gaza City and go south. That's the road they would most likely have to use, and the Israelis cut it off. Uh, and they've been moving toward the coast south of the city. On Thursday, uh, the chief of staff of the IDF, Herzi Halabi, uh, told reporters that uh, the aim was to encircle Gaza. Later on Thursday, the IDF said that it had officially encircled Gaza. Uh, that's unconfirmed, but seems reasonable to assume. Uh, and so that's their initial aim, I guess, completed, uh, achieved. We'll have to see what they intend to do at this point, whether they intend to sit in, in this position that they now occupy around Gaza City and try to squeeze it. If they try to now move into Gaza City, I'm not clear uh, what the next stage is going to be. Let's talk about the bombing of Jabalia, which if people don't know, is a referred to as a refugee camp, but it's, it's more of a proper city um, at this point, just north of Gaza City. So Derek, what do we know about the bombardment of Jabalia? Uh, Jabalia, yes, it's a it's a refugee camp. It's run by the UN Relief and Works Agency, which is the agency that handles Palestinian refugee issues. It is built up like a town or a neighborhood or a number of neighborhoods um, because it's been around for decades uh, since the uh, 1948 war. Um, but it is still classified as a refugee camp. The Israelis uh, bombed it on Tuesday, uh, ostensibly to take out a senior Hamas commander, uh, which they say that they did. Uh, they've since bombed it at least three more times. Uh, they bombed it again on Tuesday. They bombed it, uh, and not in the same area necessarily, but they have bombed the camp. Uh, they bombed it again on Tuesday, once on Wednesday, and once uh, that I know of on Thursday. Uh, the death toll cumulatively from all of these things is, uh, at this point, 195 people dead, uh, 777 wounded. There are still over 100 people missing, and I think that's, uh, just based on the initial three bombings, the the fourth one, I don't think there's a casualty figure uh, that's been released yet. Uh, the uh, as I say, they they claim that they got the guy that they were trying to get. Um, nevertheless, this has been uh, raised a lot of outcry about proportionality and whether this was legitimate 
attack under international law and what the Israelis are really doing all they can to, uh, as the Biden administration has stressed, minimize civilian casualties. Uh, and I think it's it's maybe shaken some people up. And we can talk about uh, Joe Biden's experience in Minnesota, uh, which may have put the U.S. on a different diplomatic track. I don't know, uh, honestly, because it's Joe Biden and I don't know what's going through his head. Uh, nevertheless, this has been uh, dominating the news this week, I think um, somewhat obscuring the fact that the Israelis were uh, continuing the ground offensive and, and, as I say, seem to have been making some progress uh, in terms of their their initial aims. Derek, we'll talk about the Rafa checkpoint in a second, but I think it does make sense now to talk about what happened with Biden and, and Minnesota and the White House releasing their anti-Islamophobia group. Um, it seems like there's some uh, nervousness happening within Democratic political circles. Yes. So Biden was in Minnesota on Wednesday. Minnesota has a, a sizable, it's not Michigan, uh, but it does have a sizable uh, Arab American population, Muslim population. So, uh, you know, he faced some protests when he got there. And then during a campaign fundraiser event uh, on Wednesday evening, he was challenged by a woman in the audience who identified herself as a rabbi uh, who uh, was calling, demanding a ceasefire. And Biden, uh, I, you know, I, I guess blurted out because this is what he does, kind of blurted out that uh, what is what's needed is a pause in the Israeli campaign. And then he said something about allowing time to get the prisoners out. Uh, shockingly, uh, given that it was Joe Biden, this is not entirely coherent. I, I don't know what he meant by pause. Now, the Biden administration has been using the uh, nebulous term humanitarian pause to describe a scenario where you could have something happen where it would be possible to get more humanitarian aid into Gaza, but the Israelis wouldn't have to stop bombing the place. Uh, this could be, you know, the Israelis will agree not to bomb this place at this time and everybody can kind of congregate there and we can distribute aid or it could be something else. They haven't really bothered to define it because I think this has just been a throwaway line for them uh, to seem reasonable without calling for a ceasefire, which is what international you know, human rights experts and uh, genocide scholars and, uh, you know, a whole no whole waft of people uh, have been saying is actually required here is a full ceasefire to to give time to address the, the catastrophe that's happening. The way Biden used pause seemed more like a euphemism for ceasefire than this humanitarian pause thing that's, uh, you know, very uh, undefined. But again, it's Joe Biden. I don't really know what what he meant. I don't know if he knew what he meant. Um, also, this time to get the prisoners out thing, it's unclear if he was talking just about the hostages, which would require something more than a ceasefire. It's going to require a negotiation, uh, presumably with Hamas, uh, or if he meant the foreign nationals who are trapped in Gaza. And you want to get to Rafa in a second. There's, they're being let out now, but it's a slow process. Um, or if he was talking about both or if he was talking about neither. I don't it's Joe Biden again. I don't know. Um, but that's that's. That seems to have caused the administration to move on to a, a different track because on on Thursday, the White House said it was exploring the the idea of a pause in the fighting. And again, I don't think they mean this humanitarian pause thing that doesn't really uh, necessarily mean anything. I think they were talking about a full um, kind of delay, a, a ceasefire in all but name, effectively. Um, so this may have shifted the the tenor of the kind of third-party discussions uh, about this war. And as you say, they've all also uh, announced this anti-Islamophobia 
agenda, which again is just a, it seems like a throwaway to to voters who are uh, angry at the the way the Biden administration has approached the, the situation in Gaza. It uh, doesn't seem like a, a real priority for them. But, you know, I do think it indicates that they feel like there's a political minefield that they've stepped into. And particularly, again, as we keep on mentioning, this could actually have serious ramifications with the 2024 presidential election because Biden is a weak candidate. There's probably going to be a spoiler candidate with RFK Jr. And the upper Midwest is no longer a traditional Democratic stronghold necessarily. So this is right. I mean, if you're if you're in a situation where you're talking about Donald Trump and Joe Biden being one or two points off uh, separated in either direction in Michigan and Michigan is enough to tip the balance in the Electoral College, uh, you know, the Arab American population in Michigan is, you know, two to three percent, I think, last anybody checked and maybe higher now. I don't know. Uh, but that's I mean, that's potentially decisive. And I know people w- have downplayed the the overall number of uh, Arab Americans or Muslim Americans, uh, which, OK, overall. Yeah. But if you talk about a presidential election, these are the kind of margins that could could really make a difference and have had in the past. So it's it, it, it's happened before. All right. Let, let's actually return to Gaza and, and talk about the Rafah checkpoint, which, if people don't know, is, Derek, correct me if I'm wrong, it is the sole border crossing between Gaza and Egypt, correct? Yes, that's correct. So what's been going uh, on? So, yeah, there's been big uh, doings transpiring uh, at Rafah uh, the last couple of days. Uh, the That checkpoint had been opened from the Egyptian side uh, for for some time now to allow humanitarian aid trucks uh you know a few every day they've they've gotten it up i think into the 50s now to enter gaza but uh, there's been this kind of waiting and watching to see if it would be opened from the gaza side to allow foreign nationals in particular or or dual nationals who are trapped in gaza to get out um what they announced and and what's happened this week is they've opened the checkpoint to both foreign nationals and to a select group of uh, badly wounded Palestinians. I think 81 uh, of them in what is, I assume, meant to be kind of a first wave uh, of casualties that are allowed to come out. The Egyptian government is setting up a field hospital in northern Sinai. Supposedly, there have been offers to set up additional field hospitals. So 81 patients plus, you know, a companion or, or two or somebody, you know, people to kind of go with them. So it's it's more than 81 people. That's proceeded. They've let out, I believe, uh, 60, or the, the goal was to, to get 60 uh, wounded Gazans out uh, on Thursday, uh, or si- 60 wounded Gazans and companions out. Uh, they, let, they got 46 out on, on uh, Wednesday. Um, the other piece of this, of course, is the foreign nationals. Uh, last I saw, 344 foreign nationals had gotten out through Rafa on Thursday. Uh, 364 had gotten out the previous day. Uh, there are, it's believed, around 7,000 foreign nationals in Gaza, and the Egyptian government is uh, says it's expecting to get them all out eventually. If they proceed at this pace, it's going to take a while. But they're, they're expecting to get them all out eventually. Um, of course, it's slow because uh, the Egyptians... Uh, are screening everybody who comes out to make sure that try to make sure that no uh, Hamas militants or Islamic Jihad or, or any of those guys 
uh, get out. But that's that effort is continuing. Let's talk about the overall humanitarian situation and how the quote unquote international community has responded. Uh, yes. Well, as I said, the uh, there's humanitarian aid coming in through Rafa. Um, last uh, day that I saw information for was, I believe, Tuesday, and they had gotten up to 54 trucks uh, in that day. That's um, the UN says it wants 100 truckloads a day uh, at a minimum of aid coming in. So after uh, you know almost two weeks of this, they're still barely uh, at half of that. Um, the the effort to expand that is hampered by the fact that the Israelis need to inspect or they feel they need to inspect every truck that comes in to make sure there's no weapons, there's no fuel, there's nothing on the, you know, the banned list uh, that's that's coming in. Uh, we can talk about fuel in a second. The hospital situation is another part of this. I, I, this, the government of Cyprus has floated the idea of doing uh, sea shipments from Cyprus directly to Gaza uh, with inspections that would be done on the, the Cypriot side. Uh, that could greatly increase the, uh, greatly expand the capacity for delivering aid uh, to Gaza if it actually comes to fruition. Uh, now, in terms of the hospitals and fuel, um, there are a couple of things going on here. Uh, Halavi, the the IDF chief of staff in his remarks on Thursday suggested that the Israelis might actually um, make some concession in terms of allowing fuel into Gaza that they would track to make sure that it goes to hospitals to support generators that are at present running out of fuel and, and you know running out of power. He sort of complained, I guess, or, or uh, cast some aspersions at Gazan health officials saying that they've been, you know, for Days and days, they've been saying that the fuel's going to run out, the fuel's going to run out, and it hasn't run out. Well, that's not true. Uh, a number of Gazan hospitals have shut down because their fuel has run out. Uh, some of them that are still operating, the Indonesia hospital in Gaza City, for example, is down to its backup generator, which means its oxygen station is shut down, its climate control is shut down. Uh, a number of other systems are, are being have been shut down to, to try and maintain some basic functioning. And and the fact of the matter is that if 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 you follow Halavi's logic and, and the Israelis are waiting for every hospital in Gaza to run out of power before they allow fuel in, uh, you're talking about people on ventilators or babies in incubators still dying in the interim while we uh, dither around about this. Uh, and there's another piece of this. The uh, Israeli ambassador to Germany, uh, Ron Prosor, told German media on Thursday that the Israeli government has asked other countries to send hospital ships to Gaza. Uh, this is a plan that's, I guess, under consideration. Nobody has actually sent any hospital ships yet. The French military has sent a helicopter carrier to the region. Uh, that could be used to carry. Uh, they're not going to set it up as a hospital ship, but it, they could use to carry uh, wounded Palestinians out to a hospital ship or to uh, one of these field hospitals that might be set up somewhere, in, whether it's in southern Gaza or uh, in the Sinai, uh, wherever. So there, there may be something happening. Uh, on that front, but it's still in the very, very preliminary stages. And anything politically in terms of international response or just more of the same? Well, I mean, as I said, I think the the refugee camp strike may have um, shaken some people up in the West. And that's really who we're talking about here, because those are the enablers uh, of uh, what the what Israel is doing. You know, you now have Biden talking about pauses that, you know, look a lot, sound a lot like ceasefires. You have uh, European officials talking about the need for humanitarian 
uh, ceasefires or pauses. There's still there's still some reluctance to use uh, the term ceasefire, even though that's what's needed and that's maybe what they're talking about. Uh, but there's still some reluctance to to actually use that terminology. Thank you, Derek. Um, let's close out Gaza with talking about potential end game scenarios. Um, we're almost a month into this war. Do we see any end game or is it still up in the air? So there's a couple of things happening here. One is uh, we've seen the um, the leaks out of the Israeli intelligence ministry or the leak, I guess, out of the Israeli intelligence ministry of a memo uh, that says that the best outcome here would be uh, to simply relocate the Gaza, the Gaza population to Sinai. Uh, that would require, of course, uh, making some substantial inducements to the Egyptian government to get Abdel Fattah Sisi on board with that. Um, there was a report in Ynet, uh, the Israeli media outlet, this week uh, about one such possible inducement could be uh, the Israelis would uh, get the World Bank to forgive or erase uh, a substantial part of Egypt, Egypt's foreign debt. Um, I don't think that would be enough by itself, but it could be a piece of this. Um, we've also seen a report now that was in Bloomberg, I believe, uh, talking about the possibility of, uh, the, or the, the saying that the U.S. and um, Israeli officials have been discussing the possibility of peacekeepers in Gaza. I would really like to see how that goes over with, say, the American public. Uh, to you know, to be told that we're sending U.S. soldiers to to be peacekeepers in Gaza, I'm not sure that would be a big hit. Um, nevertheless, that's apparently under discussion. So I think, you know, things are trending in the direction of ethnic cleansing. They're trending uh, from from all these bits and pieces that are coming out, trending in the direction, or at least it sounds like the Israelis are leaning in that direction. But nothing's been decided yet, um, and they're still exploring other potential options. Of course. Uh, Joe Biden has said he's opposed to relocating the population of Gaza. Um, I don't think he's that opposed to it. We'll, we'll have to, I guess, if, if push comes to shove, we'll find out. Thank you, Derek. Um, let's talk about Yemen. So what's going on there? Yes. Uh, so there's a few things here. Bloomberg uh, reported uh earlier this week that the Saudi military is on high alert uh, after uh, a battle with Houthi rebel fighters last week uh, that uh, in which at least four Saudi soldiers were killed. This is the first time the Saudis have suffered any casualties in battle with, with Yemeni rebels since their ceasefire went into effect in April 2022. That ceasefire has since technically expired, but the fighting has mostly remained uh, dormant. This is in uh, this happening is happening in sort of concert with uh, the Houthis uh, more or less openly declaring war on Israel. I mean, they fired a number of uh, drone and missile barrages at Israel uh, this week. Uh, the IDF has been in, in, intercepting them. Its air defense has been intercepting them. Um, so they haven't had any hasn't been any tangible effect. But but they're continuing to do it. They did one uh, again, I think, uh, just yesterday or last night um so this is not this was not a one-off this is something that is apparently a, a new state of affairs that certainly risks uh reviving the yemen war it puts the saudis in a difficult 
situation because you know if they attack the Yemenis at this point, if they attack the Houthis uh, at this point, they could be viewed as uh, you know kind of supporting Israel at a time when that's not terribly popular in the Arab world. So uh, there's a lot of considerations that come that, that kind of flow from that. The Israelis uh, last I saw had put a number of missile boats in the Red Sea, deploy a number of missile boats to the Red Sea. Um, I don't know if they're out there with air defense systems to kind of bolster their ability to shoot these these projectiles down, or if they're out there in case the IDF decides to retaliate, in which case you could uh, definitely see this escalate into a, a more extensive. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of geography between Yemen and Israel, and the Houthis don't really have the ability to get to Israel, but they can certainly... Uh, you know, make this a, a fairly frequent occurrence, this back and forth uh, missile strikes or, or drone strikes. Thanks, Derek. Um, let's talk about Lebanon now, there, where there is an escalation. What's been going on there uh, between Lebanon and Israel, and how does Hezbollah pay, uh, play into all of this? So um, there was a major escalation on Thursday. Hezbollah said that it, it says that it attacked 19 Israeli positions along the border on Thursday. Uh, the Israelis responded with an apparently fairly extensive uh, set of retaliatory strikes, airstrikes, um, you know, artillery, etc., uh, helicopters. Um, and this is, you know, obviously people have been watching with some trepidation on the Lebanese border. This is, seems like it's gotten worse. Uh, like this, this activity on Thursday seems more intense than anything that I've seen since. Uh, October 7th. It comes, uh, and this is where the the big concern arises, it comes uh, a day before Hassan Nasrallah, who's the leader of Hezbollah, is set to give, is scheduled to give a speech. On Friday, he will give his first speech since October 7th. So he has not publicly commented on this war. But if there is a, if if there were a point where Hezbollah were, were going to declare war against Israel, this would be it. And so uh, the fact of this escalation coupled with the speech coming tomorrow, I think has uh, set some people, uh, some people's nerves uh, uh, on edge. So uh, just something to watch. I don't have anything definite to say here, but it's it's definitely, uh, if there's going to be an expanded war, this is still the likeliest place for that to happen. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. Hopefully we don't have to do a special about this tomorrow. (laughs) 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 Really grim, grim stuff. All right. Let's leave the Middle East for a moment and, and talk about Myanmar and the new rebel offensives that have occurred on the Chinese border. Yes. Uh, there's a couple of things happening on different parts of the Chinese border. Uh, one, um, kind of over the weekend, I believe, or, or maybe it was Friday, a rebel coalition called the Brotherhood Alliance, which comprises three rebel groups, uh, the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance, the uh, uh, Tang National Liberation Army, and the Arakan Army. Uh, and that, that coalition announced that they had launched a new offensive uh, in Shan State. Uh, and so, you know, they attacked a number of uh, military outposts. They've seized apparently a few of them. Um, details are very sparse, uh, you know, anything in Myanmar, uh, getting any news out of Myanmar is, uh, is challenging, but especially from, uh, the relatively remote parts of the country, like Northern Shan, which is again, a- along the Chinese border. Um, uh, the Myanmar military, meanwhile, has been conducting airstrikes because of, uh, in, in 
Kachin State, which is next door to Shan, uh, the Kachin Independence Army has been on the on the move as well. They have uh, apparently seized control of a major road uh, in that uh, in Kachin State on Tuesday, um, and so these the military has retaliated with a couple of days of airstrikes. Um, the uh, the Brotherhood Alliance uh, says that it has captured at least one town along the Chinese border, along with uh, a key road uh, that runs into China. So this is all stuff that is attracting the attention of uh, the Chinese government. And uh, they, they've already sent uh, one senior official to Myanmar since this, uh, this offensive kicked off to kind of talk about border security uh, and what's going on. But, um, you know, things are... Uh, are still at a fairly early stage. Uh, China on Thursday, I think, uh, called for a ceasefire in the uh, uh, in this operation uh, in the northern part of northern part of Myanmar in Shan State. Uh, but um, you know, beyond that, I don't have a whole lot else to say. But this is certainly uh, a situation that could get critical given the location and given the the potential for uh, some Chinese involvement. Let's talk about a potential U.S.-China arms control talks. Uh, what's been developing there? Yeah, the Wall Street Journal reported this week that the Chinese government has agreed to ha- hold arms control talks with the U.S. next week, uh, which is something of a breakthrough. It's something that the U.S. government has been trying to uh, do for a while now. Um, successive U.S. administrations have been trying to get the Chinese government to participate in a three-way arms control pro- process with Russia and the U.S., uh, Chinese officials have always rejected the, uh, that idea because those talks, of course, focus on arms limitation or reduction even of stockpiles. And Chinese leaders will point to the fact that uh, the U.S. and Russian stockpiles dwarf China's uh, as reason for them uh, not to participate in something like that. Uh, what's happening next week is is something much more preliminary, it sounds like. They're going to talk about very basic issues like what is China's nuclear doctrine? You know, We'll try to suss out the U.S., uh, negotiators will try to suss out China's plans to expand its nuclear stockpile over the you know the coming years, that sort of thing. Uh, the kind of stuff that you would do as a prelim to maybe having uh, limitation talks at some point if China is ever ready for that. Um, the The journal also reported that the Biden administration is trying to reopen arms control talks with Russia. The U.S. and Russia should be negotiating a successor to new start, which expires in 2026. But of course, under the circumstances, uh, that just ain't happening. And the Russians uh, have shown no interest in participating. Great. I hope everyone just proliferates to the end of the uh, world. Like Kenneth Waltz hopes, every nation should get Everybody gets a new. Let's talk about Sudan. Uh, Derek, could you give us an update? Yeah, there's a brief update here. The Rapid Support Forces seems to be, uh, the paramilitary group, the Rapid Support Forces, seems to be on the move. Uh, On Monday, it claimed that its fighters had seized control of Belila Airport, which is in West Kordofan State in Sudan, uh, and is a facility that's been used by the Sudanese military to carry out airstrikes, etc. So it's a a fairly substantial uh, takeover for them. I think we talked last week about the RSF capturing Niala, the capital of Sudan's south darfur state so it's it's had a couple of uh significant successes here in in recent days which um after uh, that conflict had been kind of um i don't want to say stalemated but had been you know just locked in place for so long it's uh it's an interesting development on thursday anthony blinken uh who is uh, either on his way to the middle east or already there 
uh, at this point. But uh, prior to that, uh, issued a statement warning that the RSF is planning to carry out a large scale attack. That's his term uh, in the uh, capital of North Darfur, Al Fasher, which is potentially really serious because Al Fasher has become a uh, a place, a congregation site for a number of people, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands uh, of people who have been displaced from other parts of Darfur and other parts of Sudan. So uh, a major RSF attack on that city could uh, lead to uh, just a, an enormous amount of casualties and displacement. So a redisplacement in the case of the people who are already displaced from their homes. So uh, again, something to, to be wary of uh, hasn't happened yet, but the U.S., uh, seems to think it's it's coming. Let's talk about that new human rights report that came out about Ethiopia. Uh, yeah, this is from the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, which is a government uh, office but operates independently and is is uh, has never, to my knowledge, been terribly shy about criticizing the Ethiopian government's uh, human rights record. They claimed on Monday, uh, issued a new uh, report uh, claiming that they've tracked uh, what they say are dozens of civilian deaths just this month. Uh, well, that was actually uh, October, so I shouldn't say this month, last month now, in Amhara, the Amhara region of Ethiopia. Now, uh, we have talked uh, in the past about the conflict, uh, this kind of low-level on-and-off conflict between Ethiopian Federal Security Forces and the Fano militia, which is from Amhara. Uh, this is part of that, uh, they didn't get into specifics, but they talked about incidents, uh, a number of multi-casualty incidents in October, including drone strikes, uh, including cases where security forces essentially went into a community and started going door to door looking for militia fighters and I guess just killing uh, civilians, uh, you know, instead. Uh, but anyway, very grim. And and like Myanmar, it's it's hard to get a lot of detailed information out of Ethiopia at times, and, and this is one of those times. Um, but but it sounds like there's some very grim things happening here. <laughs> always, always grim. Derek, you need to bring some good news some days. Uh, speaking of more grim news, let's talk about the Russian mob attack that occur occurred in Dagestan. Yeah, I have bad news. It's not going to get any better. Uh, so uh, on Sunday, uh, a mob of... Uh, people in Russia's Dagestan region descended on uh, the Machachkala, Mach Machachkala airport. I'm sorry. I'm, I've been struggling with that word all week. No, that was uh, great. Uh, in, in Dagestan, they descended on the airport to attack essentially passengers uh, arriving on a flight from Tel Aviv, from Israel. There were dozens of injuries um, that, that I, I saw. I don't think uh, there have been any fatalities, but there were at least a couple of critical injuries uh, in, in this attack. Uh, the Russian Russian government shut down the airports uh, in the wake of this, reopened it uh, on Monday, and has since accused the Ukrainian government of doing basically dirty tricks. Uh, the, the Telegram channel where this mob was organized apparently it's called ultra dagestan uh it has some links to a russian exiled opposition politician uh who is now in ukraine and so the russians accuse the ukrainians of uh, kind of orchestrating this attack as a way to 
um, make Russia look bad. It's a way to affect the uh, Russia's relationship with Israel, which is already on the rocks because of Gaza. Uh, the Israeli foreign ministry did summon Russia's, the Russian ambassador on Monday to protest this incident. Uh, it had just summoned him on Sunday to protest the fact that Russia had hosted a delegation of Hamas officials in Moscow. Uh, so, you know, that, that relationship is, has seen better days, to be sure. But uh, as far as I know, you know, I mean, the Ukrainians have denied that they have any connection to what went on. And I don't think there's any proof of it, but there, there is some uh, link here. A, a journalist, uh, Leonid Rogozin on Twitter, uh, uh, sussed out some connection between this Russian politician and this uh, Telegram channel. So uh, who knows? Uh, and let's conclude with Ukraine. And it's just interesting how Gaza has totally forced Ukraine from the headlines. I I heard that Zelensky had tried to get a lot of promotion when he came to the United States. He wasn't allowed to speak to Congress. He also wasn't allowed on Oprah. So it's just interesting to see how the whims of people change over time. Uh, yeah, I mean, the you know, the Republican caucus in the House is now controlled by, um, uh, you know, the 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 MAGA cohort, and they're very skeptical of supporting Ukraine. Um, so not it's not surprising that he couldn't get uh, get a cha- another invite to speak to Congress. The Oprah thing, yeah, that's you know I I hadn't heard that, but that's that is interesting. Um, the I mean the war is still going on. I, you know people are paying more attention to Gaza, but but the war is definitely still going on. The Russian military uh, on Tuesday through Wednesday. Uh, undertook its most extensive uh, single-day bombardment of Ukraine this year. Uh, it attacked, according to Ukrainian officials, uh, at least uh, 118 uh, populated areas that could be villages, towns, or cities, killed at least four people. Uh, so it's it's not, you know, it's not diminishing. It, it, it is sort of static on the front lines. The Russians are attacking a, a three cities, uh, in eastern Ukraine, um, they've made some progress around Avdivka, uh, and you know Kupiansk a couple of weeks ago was supposedly in critical shape, um, but there's been no, uh, you know, no major breakthrough in any of these places. Uh, the Ukrainians have supposedly been, uh, reportedly been, uh, making probing attacks on the eastern bank of the Dnipro River in Kherson Oblast, uh, and maybe have gotten a foothold i don't know how how big a foothold and and uh whether it would sustain a wider operation but it sounds like you know having been more or less stuck in this uh zaporizhia counteroffensive for weeks now that they're looking for a, they're probing for another uh potential weakness in the russian line where they could uh, could try to make a a, a big splashy uh move uh, and Kherson would be one possibility if they can get across the river and really establish themselves. On Thursday, uh, in an interview, or actually it was Wednesday, I guess it was published. It's been reported out, uh, was reported out on Thursday. But uh, in an interview with The Economist, uh, the commander of the Ukrainian military, Valery Zaluzhny, uh, said that, uh, I'm going to quote him, actually, just like in the First World War, we have reached the level of technology that puts us into a stalemate. There will most likely be no deep and beautiful breakthroughs. So he's saying uh, what what you've been saying for a while now, I guess, uh, which is that they're stalemated uh, and I guess is hoping for some kind of technological breakthrough. I don't know if like the AI this is what I was going to happen is going to. 
This you know, is like Scott Skynet's going to become aware and it's going to defeat the Russians. Like, I don't know. I don't know what he's waiting for. Uh, but at this point, he, he seems to think that things aren't going anywhere. The Russians denied this. They're uh, insisting that, that they're still going. It's still going great from their perspective. But uh, that's where things stand, I guess. Well, great. We have one of the worst possible situations, which is a stalemate that could go on for basically years. Good. Good job. everyone. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's of, probably, probably where we are. If, if even the Ukrainians are saying that now, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's that's wild. Uh, they've been permanent war. Uh, really insisting that that they're you know just on the cusp of a, a big breakthrough and to have their military command top military commander say no not really it's it's not going to happen uh is is certainly interesting well on that terrible note derek thank you so much everyone thank you very much for listening please spread um this podcast around we really do appreciate it. and if you haven't yet please consider subscribing um it takes an incredible amount of work to put this together and and we really need your support so uh, thank you all and we'll talk to you later bye Bye.